This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for August 17th, 2018. In this week's episode, we'll talk about botnets, what they are, and how bad actors can use botnets for everything from simple malicious internet mischief to serious server takedowns. Plus, we'll have news on some of the more interesting topics from last week's spate of computer security conferences. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. So, summer is the time when security researchers get together and have conferences and they all meet and they all see what they actually look like in real life and they give these presentations and they come up with some really interesting stuff. And I know that you've been following this a lot, Josh. You've got a few things to tell us about this week. That's right. Yeah. So last week was, you know, Black Hat, DEF CON, B-Sides. There were like three conferences that all kind of overlapped with each other. So there's always a lot of really great security stories, for, you know, for people who, who follow this and get excited about all the, you know, the latest things. So a couple of um, interesting Mac relevant uh, and Apple relevant things that happened came from, not surprisingly, Patrick Wardle. <laughs> we, we, we talk about him a lot and mention him a lot on the Mac security blog. And Patrick Wardle is a, a Mac threat researcher. He can, and he tends to find a lot of vulnerabilities and and issues with Apple software, in particular Mac OS. So he gave a talk at Black Hat in which he discussed this idea that firewalls are not a panacea. They're they they don't they're not a cure all. And he he gave some examples. He said, you know, an attacker could easily host malicious software or plant a, a command and control hub on an iCloud domain. And, and of course, that could also be Twitter or other things in order to trick the firewall. Because what the firewall sees is that something is communicating with Twitter.com or iCloud.com. And it goes, okay, so what? I know that's a legitimate site. And so Wardle argues an attacker could easily exfiltrate data to your iCloud account. And then the firewall just isn't going to detect that, that, that there's anything wrong with that. I think the real takeaway from, from this talk is that you need to know that any product has limitations. You cannot expect a firewall to know that there's something surreptitious going on here, that some, there's some code embedded, you know, that it's pulling down from some secret location on Twitter or iCloud. That's not what a firewall is really designed to do. The firewall that's built into macOS is an inbound firewall only, as we've talked about. And Intego NetBarrier is a two-way firewall, so it'll not only protect you from things that want to come into your Mac, but also things that are on your Mac that want to communicate outside. But regardless of what firewall you're using, there's certain things that firewalls are just not really designed to um, to detect. And so that's why it's very important to have a layered approach to security, to have as many layers as possible so that bad stuff that's on your computer can't get out, bad stuff that wants to get into your computer can't get in. Okay, you told me about something else that Patrick Wardle revealed 
a zero-day vulnerability, something to do with mouse clicks? Yeah, so th this is the other conference that Patrick Wardle spoke at, which was DEF CON. Busy guy. <laughs> he was pretty busy last week. So he gave a talk at DEF CON, and this one is a little more interesting to me, because in this talk, he revealed a zero-day vulnerability in macOS High Sierra, meaning this is a vulnerability that's in the wild right now. Your Mac with High Sierra has this flaw, and it's not patched yet. Okay, when we say it has this flaw of vulnerability, that doesn't mean that you're going to be attacked. It means that someone has discovered this, and it needs to be patched as soon as possible. True, right. One of the important things to realize here is that this is not that much of a concern, I would say, for like the, the everyday Mac user. Where this could be a problem, this particular flaw, is... If somebody gets software onto your computer, they can use this. So what is the flaw? In macOS, there are these synthetic mouse down events. So it's it's sort of simulating, you know, a physical mouse or physical trackpad and clicking with your finger. So there's some accessibility features built into macOS um, that make it possible for people with limited mobility, for example, to simulate a mouse click. And it's important, you know, obviously people need to have that ability to do things like that. But there's certain places in macOS where Apple is very careful about allowing simulated mouse clicks, such as when you're trying to load a kernel extension. This is something that embeds itself deeply into the operating system. And it, it can be good things like an antivirus program or it could be really, really malicious things that say want to monitor everything you're doing and so forth. And so what Wordle discovered is that it's possible for you to do two synthetic mouse down events in a row and it confuses High Sierra into thinking that it's one legitimate click. So basically this works around the idea that you should be able to block kernel extensions when they get installed. But with this workaround, now it's possible to authorize a kernel extension that uh, that shouldn't be authorizable by this synthetic mouse down. So there's something else at DEF CON this week, something about the ability to infiltrate Hewlett Packard printers and what, turn them into a botnet? <laughs> well, yeah, so, so this is a pretty serious flaw, okay? Fax machines, a lot, you know, people think, oh, nobody uses fax anymore. But frankly, I mean, there's a lot of industries that still rely on fax machines. Realtors use fax machines, hospitals use fax machines, because at least my understanding is that in some cases, fax machines can be HIPAA compliant, where, for example, email might not be, because, you know, you've got it in a secure location behind the counter where people can't just walk by and, and see what just got faxed to you. Also, I understand in Japan, apparently, uh, fax machines are still very, very commonly used. Well, they were invented in Japan originally, yeah. They were, they were invented in Japan, yeah. So, so fax machines are, believe it or not, out there a lot more than you might expect. And in fact, some people who've had to fax once or twice in their life from home may have a landline that's hooked up to their, you know, all-in-one printer uh, that has fax capability. And that's probably not the best idea uh, in light of these new flaws that were discovered. So researchers found that HP fax machines have critical flaws that could grant full access into your network to anyone who knows your fax number. 
and they demonstrated this flaw by using some vulnerabilities that have been tied to the NSA, some well-known vulnerabilities that exploit SMB file sharing and things like that, stuff that can find its way into the, the far reaches of everything inside of your network and infect other things. Basically, the idea behind this is if you're using a fax machine, if you know, in your business or a home office, whatever it might be, you want to make sure that you are patching it, especially if it's HP. HP has released a number of firmware updates for for it, uh, several fax machine models. There's a big list. We'll link to it in, in the show notes of, of known affected HP fax devices. So you want to patch your firmware if, if you have one of these HP fax machines. It's possible that other manufacturers may also have affected devices. That's not known for sure yet, but it wouldn't be terribly surprising if there are other companies that may be affected by similar flaws. So what can happen is that malicious users can turn these machines into bots and make a botnet. Is that correct? Yeah, it's possible. And these botnets can do some pretty malicious things. Botnets can do all sorts of nasty things. That is a fact. Okay, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to explain what botnets are and why you might need to worry about your smart light bulbs. If the fast approaching first day of school is circled on your calendar, Intego hopes you'll take a little bit of your summertime that's left to step up your security. After all, when you head back to the classroom with your Mac, you'll want to be greeted by good old friends and classmates, not brand new viruses and malware. As part of our commitment to protecting students and teachers and all Mac users on the security front, Intego wants to make sure that your Mac security is set up and squared away for the fall. It's Intego's back-to-school sale. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can take 50% off any Intego software by using the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout. That's right. You can get Intego's award-winning security and utility software for 50% off the suggested retail price. Just use the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout. No spaces, all one word. The Intego Back to School sale only lasts till that circle date on the calendar. So hurry. Save 50% on Intego software with the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout. Visit Intego.com today. So we were talking about botnets earlier, and I like that word botnet. It's got that like one, two step thing. You can dance to it in a way. And it sounds like Jetsons or something, but it's really quite malicious, isn't it? How do botnets work? We always have this image. What did one politician say? A 400 pound guy sitting on a couch in his mother's basement, that hackers are always like that, that they're always in dark basements <laughs> and they're not shaved. And, you know, we always have the image of hackers as, what would be the right word? Outcast from civilization. Whereas hackers these days are merely, this is just organized crime and botnets are the tools that they use. Instead of having individuals typing with the green letters that come down on the screen, like in the matrix, they have these tools that automatically tunnel into websites and send out commands and do all these things. So the bot part of botnet means that they're automated because why would you hire 50 people to do all this work when you can just write a simple program? And the net means that they're networked. So can you explain to us, how does a botnet work? How does it know what to do? How does it, is it self-aware? Does it return on its maker? <laughs> well, at this point, botnets are not 
quite self-aware. <laughs> it's not we're not quite at the point where we need to be too concerned about things coming alive and and artificial intelligence taking over the world. We'll do a few. We'll do an episode on that in a few weeks. <laughs> okay. I think basically the the thing to know about botnets is that you know there's malware out there that is designed to give an attacker basically full control of your system to do whatever they want with your computer. And the kinds of things that botnets are typically used for um, would be things like, um, so well, sometimes they're, they're used for mining cryptocurrency now. That's that's one use. Yes, we've talked about that a lot. Another thing that traditionally has been a um, an activity done by infected computers that are part of a botnet uh, or zo- zombied or bot computers is to attack websites. So you might see that happen where somebody is targeting uh, a rival company. And uh, this has happened with, you know, uh, kind of game servers, Minecraft, you know, server operators, you know, some maybe operated by some kids or something. I don't know. And, and and they have this, this idea that we want to take out the competition. And so they get control of a botnet, and they direct all of this traffic, you know, from all these infected computers toward that uh, competitor, you know, competitor's server. Yes, this is a denial of service attack or a DDoS, distributed denial of service attack. And what it does is it tries to overwhelm a web server by sending too many requests for data in a second. Now, a normal web server can handle hundreds, if not thousands of requests a second. But if it's a small server, you know, if it's just like, a personal website on shared hosting, it won't have a great deal of capacity. Larger capacity sites may have actual intermediate servers to protect them against that sort of thing. So the whole idea is to just overwhelm. It's like you get so many people standing in line to buy pizza that no one's going to be able to buy pizza. It's the same kind of thing. And the server might crash right. or the server might just respond really, really, really slowly. Exactly. So, and, and these are just a couple of examples of the types of things that you can do with a botnet. Basically, when you're in control of this zombie army of computers, now you can do a whole bunch of things <laughs> that you couldn't do if you had fewer resources and less processing power, less network bandwidth and so forth. Right. And and another thing that botnets sometimes are used for is to send out spam because right. any given person can only send a certain number of email messages through a host normally. And this way, if they're sending them from, say, 10,000 different computers, it's easy to send out billions of spams. Right. And it's also less likely that you'll get blocked and have it affect your entire business because now you've got posts here and there that are sending out a much smaller quantity of messages rather than millions of messages all coming from one IP address that any mail provider is going to be able to instantly identify as a a spam site. So what could be part of a botnet? Obviously, a Mac could be part of a botnet. Could a toaster be part of a botnet? Could an iPhone be part of a botnet? Don't we have this worry now that with all these smart devices, I've got some smart lights in my office could they be hijacked and end up serving as a botnet? Um, <laughs> well, the, the kind of scary answer is it's possible. Yeah, because um, all of these Internet of Things devices have some capabilities um, that that could allow them to to do some things beyond just, you know, being a light in, in your room. Right. They can all connect to a network. 
Mm -hmm. And they all kind of essentially, because of that, they have a little computer inside of them. And so they may not necessarily be able to do a lot. There's probably not a whole lot you could do with just, you know, hacking one light bulb. But the idea is that if you get access to a whole bunch of compromised devices, then you have a little bit more power leverage. And, and this is why we always tell people to change the default username and password on any device like that. It's particularly security cameras because they connect to the outside network often to upload their footage. And it's probably the same Chinese company that makes all the security cameras that are sold in the world, no matter what brand names are on them. And if they all use admin as the default username and admin as the default password, Someone can use their computer's botnet to search these things out, maybe put some payload onto them, and then make these cameras self-aware and attack the world. <laughs> there are definitely cases recently where we've seen even devices such as your router. Your router is supposed to be protecting you from all the nasty stuff on the internet. But if your router gets compromised, well potentially you're in really big trouble because there's a lot of things that somebody can do when they've got your router under their control. They can spy on everything you're doing because all of your internet activities go through your router. Okay, so let's assume that you're running a botnet. Okay. That you've got your own personal, it's called Josh's botnet. Oh boy. How do you tell these computers, toasters, and light bulbs to do something? Let's say a denial of service attack, which is pretty simple. It's basically sending a request to load a page from a website, or it's even just sending an HTTP request to a website, to, to a domain like Intigo.com or Apple.com. But how do you tell all of your bots to do this, in particular, at the same time? Okay, well, first of all, I'm not going to run a botnet because that's unethical. But okay. Let's say Tom Cruise is running a botnet. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> all right. So if Tom Cruise is running a botnet and he wants to send a command to all of these devices. There's, there's multiple ways that that could be done, of course. I mean, this is the internet we're talking about, and there's all kinds of ways that you could do this. But Yeah, but he, he can't just send out a million <laughs> commands because someone might notice that, right? Yeah, it, it's it's true. It could be a little bit suspicious. Um, you know, internet service providers might see that this one computer is trying to send commands to millions of other computers. A lot of times what botnet operators will do is something a little bit more surreptitious and that doesn't raise a lot of red flags. Um, an example of this, um, a lot of times botnets will look for commands in public places, kind of hiding in plain sight. This is sometimes called steganography, where you're, you're hiding some, something that has a deeper meaning than it looks like on the surface and hiding it in plain sight somewhere in, in, in the public. I'd seen that word, but I thought it had something to do with dinosaurs. <laughs> I think you're thinking of Stegosaurus, maybe. Okay. So, so give us an example of Stegosaurusnography. <laughs> okay. The first thing that comes to mind for me when I think of Stegosaurusnography usually is a picture. Okay. So you could take a photograph. A photograph contains a lot of information. And you could take the least significant bits of the color in a photograph, and you could use that and alter that and basically kind of inject data, code, commands, whatever you want to put into it. And because you're altering only the least significant bits of the color, someone just looking at that image is not going to detect that anything is 
different from maybe your, your original version of that picture. So let me see if I can give an example. My, my camera that I use most often, it has 24 megapixels. So that's 24 million pixels. I take a picture, it's 6,000 pixels by 4,000. If I just took the top row of pixels, 6,000 pixels, and I altered each pixel, let's say one for the letter A, two for the letter B, three for the letter C, in some way that could be read, I could write 6,000 characters on that line and no one would ever be able to notice it. Is that it? Yeah, pretty much. You just need to know how to uh, how to read how to that. read it. Yeah what, yeah, what to look for and then how to interpret that. Right. Okay. But my light bulb probably isn't looking at photos on Instagram. So how does the light bulb get some sort of command? Yeah. So again, it's more hiding in plain sight. And it's not necessarily anything as sophisticated as altering a photograph and posting it someplace publicly. Although that is something that that might be something that more nation state actors might might be interested in, do, in doing because it's a little bit um well, it, frankly, it's a lot more difficult to detect. Nation state actors. That sounds like a band from Manchester in the early 1980s. Okay, Kirk. <laughs> so tell me, tell me more about, I want to know how the light bulb knows to do something nefarious. Okay. So w what's more common is that uh, take some public site. It could be Twitter. It could be Reddit. It could be Pastebin. It could be any number of other public sites that anybody has access to. In fact, really, many botnets have, have done is to take advantage of these services, um, which, of course, anybody can sign up for. You know, you can create a free account on any of these and you can post whatever you want. These botnets are designed to look for particular keywords or trigger phrases or things like that. It might be a hashtag, for example, on Twitter. And when it finds that particular unique thing that it's looking for, then it knows that that Twitter user is potentially going to be posting commands for the botnet. And, and it's not going to be something really obvious necessarily. It could, it could just be, you know, some key phrases that are pre-programmed into the botnet. So, like, Darwin loves Bitcoin. What, what's, what's Darwin loves Bitcoin? What does that come from? Ah, well, this was in Homeland last year. It was in episode nine, so it was a 10-episode season. It was just the penultimate episode. And the people working with Saul Berenger found out that the Russians were using a Twitter account to communicate with people. And if they tweeted, Darwin loves Bitcoin, that meant that the spies should stand down, that they shouldn't do anything. But of course, they had a standard reply, what about Ripple? And when they replied, that allowed Saul's team to see the accounts of the people who replied and find the Russian spies. Or what about the Manchurian Candidate? Do you remember that movie? They had brainwashed this guy. It was Frank Sinatra in the original movie. And when someone held up the Jack of Hearts to him, that would set off a reaction in his brain. Yeah, Denzel Washington, right? In the newer version of the movie? Well, no, it was it was Lee Schreiber who was the Manchurian oh, Candidate oh, in right. the remake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Denzel Washington was the one trying to find... Yeah, um, that's Denzel right. Denzel Washington was the one trying to prove that he was the bad guy. Got it. But yeah, it's the same idea. It's like one thing sets off a reaction. So if I hold up the jack of hearts to my light bulb, um, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> right. Well, hopefully your light bulb doesn't have a, a camera embedded in it. So it's, well, it's smart. They, they sold it to me saying it's a smart light bulb. <laughs> All right. So w we have an idea how they work. We have an idea what they do. Is there any way to stop these things? The only way to stop them is to really cut off the, the, the head, the thinking part that's sending out the commands, right? To find the Twitter account, the Reddit page, or 
the person with the deck of cards. Right, right. And so um, a lot of times, uh, another thing, just to mention briefly, that botnets sometimes do is they look for a particular, you know, um, particular strings in domain names. So sometimes what a botnet operator will do is they'll register a domain name that happens to fall into, you know, uh, a pattern that these infected computers are looking for. In fact, sometimes in the past, researchers and law enforcement have worked together to actually do exactly like you're talking about, to cut off the head of the botnet by registering, you know, proactively registering some of these domains that could be registered by an attacker. They kind of get there first and then they issue a command to, you know, kill the botnet to anything that phones home there is going to get cut off. Right. And Sometimes researchers find this in the code of malware, that there's a list of a number of domains, and maybe there's not just one domain, but there's a number that the, the botnet can fall back on in case the first one's down, the second one's down, etc. And as you say, by registering them in advance, they can prevent the botnet from working. Th this is a little bit scary, though, when I think about it. Obviously, most of this is done, as we said, denial of service attacks. It's not so much targeted at individuals. But it is somewhat scary, and I guess this just reinforces the fact that we need multiple layers of protection to prevent software from going out of our computers, to prevent it from getting in, etc. And, you know, sometimes when you hear this, it sounds like science fiction, but, I mean, if they can do that with light bulbs, things aren't looking very positive for the future, are they? Well, I, I think what it really speaks to is that um, as consumers and, uh, and buyers of these products, um, we have... A responsibility to make sure that you know we're not just going to go out and buy whatever the cheapest thing is on the market. We we really need to to be careful about how we're spending our money because if we are just buying cheap garbage that is you know, that has uh, is put out by a company that has no interest in security, they don't care about it. They just want to make a buck. We, we need to put our money where our mouth is. And we need to change the default password whenever possible. Of course, this isn't possible for a light bulb, but for certain devices, we can. Yeah, and devices really, honestly, should not be hard-coded with the same password on every you know device. Um, if they're going to do that, then it, it needs to be designed in such a way so that it will not communicate, uh, it will not let you finish setting it up until you change that password. Okay, with all this in mind, I think I'm going to VPN into my smart light bulbs and see what they're doing. <laughs> you have a good week, Josh. Stay secure. All right, stay secure, Kirk. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.